Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. I often talk about opinion poll data with guests, so this time to talk more about what we can read into polls and what we shouldn't, I'm joined by an actual pollster, YouGov's Chris Curtis. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Mark. How's it going? Yeah, I guess the first question is, what does a pollster like you actually do all day? Well, I suppose... You know, the big part of the job would be fairly similar to anyone who's worked in any kind of agency. Uh, you have a load of clients and projects that you work on. They come to you with their general needs. Just if you're in a marketing company, it would be, I want this marketing project. In our case, it's come to you and go, we've got this research project. We want to know how many teachers are happy to return to school if they reopen or how many parents would be happy to send their kids back to school if it was open, say, for the Department for Education or whoever the the client may be and you work out their research needs you script up a questionnaire you put it into field you send back the results and you analyze the results and, and report back to the client i think the big thing that probably differs in in my world to what would be to to, to other sorts of um uh agencies or marketing agencies or, or market research um people more generally is obviously there's a big public facing role so we try to do a lot of work looking at the kind of stuff that gets in the newspapers whether that's who's who you're going to vote for at the next election um or you know we do some slightly more whimsical research as well on the people pronounce it scone or scone but generally on the political side the kind of thing that gets attention trying to describe and explain and analyze what's happening in politics to kind of make it um in, in a kind of way so that 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 you know informed but general members of the public can also understand what's going on as well and, and in terms of where those more political questions come from i think one of the suspicions that people often have is that the choice of questions and so on is quite politically loaded now obviously as you said the an awful lot and probably the vast bulk of you guys business is exactly that 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 your clients commission some work because they're interested in a particular topic um, for the political stuff, though, quite a lot of that, I'm right in thinking, aren't I, is this is what YouGov decide, you know, regularly does anyway, partly to get publicity for the company. It's not being driven by a you know, conservative or Labour multimillionaire somewhere thinking, oh, that's the question I want to come out next week. Yeah, I mean, part of the thing that's really good about YouGov and the reason that I really enjoy working there is because we have, this, we have a lot of freedom to be able to run our own research questions. And it is a team of us sitting in a room thinking what would be interesting to do that week. Now, because you know, this kind of comes from our sort of history as an online pollster, it means that we have a lot more space to be able to do a lot of this research internally a lot cheaper than some of the more traditional methods would be. So that allows us to do a lot more of our own stuff off our own backs. Now, the good, the good you know, that's good for, I think, for the yeah. company because it allows us to get good publicity. But I think that's also good for the sort of politics more generally because it means that there is some analysis which is you know the aim of it is to be as independent as possible the aim of it is to you know try to capture what is going on best as possible without any slants or biases um, and then that's put out into the world in a sort of accessible way for everyone to see so i think the fact that we've got the freedom to do that and that is the main aim of a lot of what we do i think it's a really good thing and one thing i think is very striking about you gav is the extent to which that follows through with your website so i spend much more time than the average person looking at the websites of different opinion poll companies 
And a lot of them, I mean, the thing to be fair to all of the main pollsters in Britain and even the relatively obscure ones is the basic standards of transparency through the British Polling Council's rules and so on are much, much better than for many other countries. But there are quite a few pollsters where, okay, you'll find the PDF, but you have to dig quite deep into the website to find the PDF of the data tables of the poll that appeared a few days before. You, you, the YouGov website is full of snazzy graphics, nicely written commentary to help explain and so on. And is that's, that's, I guess, is all driven primarily by the idea that you want to raise YouGov's profile, but I suspect probably does quite a lot to help educate an interested wider audience mm. in what's actually happening in politics. Do you have much sort of sense of, for example, how many teachers and school children engage with that content and the like? So, so if I sort of start on the, the first point there, because I, I think it's worth saying how brilliant the British Polling Council is mm, and how good it is um, that we have an organisation in this country, which means that you know, if a poll is done and put into the public domain, us as pollsters have to put the tables up. Um, and I think that's a good thing because it means that, you know, wild claims that can't be backed up and checked and understood and analysed can't be made in newspapers. Yeah. And just like to us. jump in there to add for anyone listening who's not looked at those tables, they don't necessarily know what they contain, that includes the full wording of the questions and the order in which the questions were asked, which are two obvious ways if, if you wanted to rig a poll or if you inadvertently bias a poll by a poor design mm -hmm. choice. You know, all of that transparency is there. Um, but back to you, Chris, you were saying. Yeah, so, so people always remember the... Um, the the uh, the yes minister or the yes prime minister mm. get about how you get support or opposition for something you ask six questions that lead people towards mm. i can't remember what it was now was it uh, supporting oh uh, getting uh, conscription mm. you, you ask six questions to push people towards supporting conscription and then you just give them the last question or you do yeah. the opposite and you get the complete opposite result to a certain extent you could do that in the poll um, no, yeah, I, let me see i reckon i reckon i could do that let me see if i can do that off the top of my head so do you think all teenagers should for a period of time be provided with free food and accommodation by the state? I think that would be my starting question, because of course you would. Do you think while doing that, they should be trained up in a range of practical skills they may find useful later in their life? I can, you can see how I can, yeah. you can get people towards the yeah. conscription now. Yeah, and I, I, the effects of that are often, I think, exaggerated, but it is true that you can yeah. massively move, particularly on the kind of issues that, that the public don't really have care about much anyway or think about much anyway you can you can make an influence and therefore it's important to have those um possibly leading questions published as well if that is the case so yeah but the british Poem council make make sure we don't do that make sure that all of these claims can be checked by people like you or me by going on these websites and therefore tweeting about it if we don't think what's been reported is accurate or okay um that, 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 that's a good thing um with YouGov, you know, as I mentioned, we're an online company. One of the things that we specialise in is what we call syndicated data, basically. So we have a big, we call it the profiles tool. Which basically, we have a panel of about 300,000 people who regularly take part in our surveys, and we hold a large amount of data on those people. Their, you know, their age, their basic demographics, up to their general attitudes, and then we can you can you can cross that data so you can look at certain segments of the population and what they think of Margaret Thatcher and Boris Johnson and attitudes towards you know do they use this washing powder or that washing powder or whatever, and you can cross all of those variables, and that's one of the the key things we do as a business. What we can do on that is therefore pull out some of that syndicated data and put it on our website, mm. and that's why um, we have such sort of such a wide range of um, 
you know, public data on our website, whether that's our ratings tool, which basically gives a view of how many people like or dislike or haven't heard of thousands of things from brands to politicians to uh, music outrageously artists. there is one current interim co-leader of political party i notice isn't included oh in is that true oh, well, 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 I, uh, we'll uh, get that fixed. <laughs> i mean you want to know how many more I, I think the don't knows are going to win i think that's my one saving grace is that the don't knows will yeah. be so dominant my net rating can't be that negative <laughs> Yeah, well, the thing is, we've obviously got we've obviously got a leadership election coming out for the Lib Dems now. Mm. So I think by the time we manage to gather enough data, mm. um, they're probably be too late. The general point of, that's that's why we that's why we do it. In, in terms of your, your final point, um, uh, in terms of the, the, the there's one area. I mean, obviously, you know, it'd be great if kids and um, and schools do get involved. I'm sure they're to a certain extent they do. I don't know the extent to which mm. our data is used yeah. for those purposes, but there's one that, that's definitely, definitely do because it's basically what sort of got me into this job in the first place, which is when I studied my A-level politics, mm. one of the things that like, really I got interested in was they, in, in our textbook, there was a big section basically looking at how Britain voted. Mm. And it broke it down by a wide range of demographics, what newspapers people read. And I just found this fascinating. Mm. I remember reading this for days and then going online and looking at it. Um, and now basically that's what I do. <laughs> and it's just yeah. great fun. Like I'm now, after each election, one of the people that, that goes and does that analysis and breaks it down and writing, write, you know, writes that up for our website. And we now get... Um, requests from textbooks and exam boards quite often to use that data or use those charts for exams in their textbooks. So it's, 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 I think it's fantastic that that data is being used for those purposes. Obviously, you know, for that, but also, you know, it goes into books that understand elections and it's going to be looked back on to understand exactly what happened and, you know, in years to come and to understand the sort of, uh, you know, the, the makeup of the British electorate and how that's changing over time. And that touches on a question obviously that comes up a lot about whether or not we can trust the polls and we've talked about this a little bit in terms of transparency and so on and actually the thing that always intrigues me about whether or not or how much we should sensibly trust the polls is a slightly different take because I think the thing with political polling is in the end it's always judged against actual election results whether it's a general election result or a party leadership election or a mayor of London election or Scottish Parliament so actually there is a real safeguard there because every now and again the polls have to come out close to the actual result or they'll be discredited the thing that always intrigues me though is that every now and again that goes really badly wrong and some sort of methodology problem or or similar is discovered and then you know people start doing polls in a slightly different way is in my experience instead of working in in sort of communications uh previously is that people place a huge amount of trust on poll findings in non-political areas where you don't have the equivalent of something like a general election to benchmark against. And I do wonder whether the issue about trusting polls is not so much their reliability for political stuff, but that far too many people are too trusting about polls in areas where, because there isn't that benchmarking, it's actually much harder to get it right. You have to work to the assumption that your everyday piece of research is about as accurate as your polling is. So, you know, we, we've now got this. Almost always we'll call almost all of the parties to within four points of their total 
percentage. That's, but that's basically what we've done when we've looked back when the British Polling Council and John Curtis has looked back over all of the elections we called in the UK and they say pretty much always you get all of the parties right to plus or minus four percent, which is, you know, sometimes, sometimes that's if it's better a than pundit, that, definitely be better than political yeah. pundits. <laughs> yeah. And, and sometimes if it's, if it's at one end of that, that can be a real problem. And yes, it is better than political pundits. It's basically the most accurate, I think, by quite some distance, the most accurate the most accurate way of working out what's going to happen in an election by quite some way. Better than listening to the pundits, better than listening to social media, better than anything else. You know, the polls are the best that we have. We have this a lot at the moment when we're talking about the models that are being put together by epidemiologists. I've got my mm. word out. And it's like, you know, they're, they're, they're going to include inaccuracies. There's going to be problems. There's going to be errors. Some things are going to be larger. Some things are going to be smaller. But that don't mean you don't stop listening to the scientists. Yeah. It means you accept that there's uncertainty there. And it's the same with polls. It's the best we got. With non-political polling, where you don't have that check of the election has told us the poll is mm. right or wrong, you know, do we need to tweak our methodology and so on, how much is there sort of benchmarking against other evidence to, to make sure that, for example, the samples are as representative as you would hope they are? So, so one of the reasons we do political polling is almost to work out how accurate the research is to prove it. Oh, right. And therefore, we can, we can generally work to the assumption that the other research is probably about as good as the political researchers. Um, but the one point I generally make on that is whilst in elections, the whole margin is normally plus or minus that 4%. So yeah. Yeah, if you're out one way by a little bit, you can look like you're really wrong because you said that the Conservatives were going to get 33% in 2015, but actually they got 37%. I think that was the final number. Yeah, yeah that looks really dramatic. Um, actually, if you're like Dyson Hoovers, you'd be over the moon if somebody could come to you and uh, predict, you know, do some market sizing for you and, and get it accurate to that, that mm. level. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I think also the sort of the, 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 they're expecting less in the non-election political arena, usually, uh, than they are in the research yeah. that we're doing on, on, on trying to work out yeah. who's going to win an election. And that's quite an important point, isn't it? That, you know, in, in political polls, the difference between, say, the Labour Party being on 35% and 41% mm. is massive in terms of what that might mean for future government, future election results, etc. But the difference between Dyson discovering that 70% or 76% of people may be don't like the fact that a whole chunk of the company was relocated overseas is yeah. is irrelevant you know even the difference between 43 and 50 uh, 47 and 53 percent in a sense is irrelevant it's it put, paints you the broad picture politics is unusual in that very small margins uh, are the difference between you know triumph and tragedy even in PR systems but all the more so in first past the post systems yeah and I mean we we kind of have it a little bit here but then at the same time it's you know it's at least quite nice that we have this sort of mm. Yeah, the, the, the Conservative Party, I think, has polled anywhere between you know, about 45% and 18% over the past 12 months. 50% and 18%, so yeah, a dramatic range of uh, polling. It moves up and down, even election on election, not just, just midterm. If you're in more of a system like the US at the moment, increasingly how it's looking, I think it must be increasingly depressing to do polling because almost all of your elections kind of happen within the margin of error. It's very, very difficult um, and, and the accuracy there is even more important um, and so much harder to, to, to screw it up. Yeah, and particularly when it's, it's a, it's a polarised electorate and a predominantly two-party system, 
actually getting things like modeling of turnout right is even more important than it is in the UK. Um, I, I guess implicit in everything that we've been saying is that not only are polls trustworthy enough or accurate enough to be worth paying attention to, but also that it's worth paying attention to them way ahead of an election campaign, way ahead of polling day itself. Um, and at the time in which we're recording, it's a bit less than a year to things like the Scottish Parliament and Welsh Assembly elections, but it may be as much as four years until the next Westminster general election. I mean, that could be a really foolish comment in six months time where we're in a general election campaign, but it, it's likely to be a few years until the next Westminster general election. What's your take on how much attention we should just pay to things like voting attention polls mm. at all at the moment? So my general view is that um, voting intention is the most important metric of how political parties are doing in the same way that if you uh, if you run a podcast the most important metric is how many listeners are you getting if you run a business your most important metric is how much profit are you making right like all of these things are the, are the most important number for you to measure now that doesn't mean that it's the be all and end all and it doesn't mean that you should not explain it and caveat it you know if you're a company at the moment yeah you can go well our profits this but obviously we're in the middle of a global pandemic and we might be able to bounce back and it's the same with voting intention it's important to measure it's important to track it's important to discuss what it is at the moment and understand it but you also have to go yeah but we're three years out from an election in the middle of a global pandemic god knows if we'll still even have the same leader of the conservative party at the time of the next election we'll have a new leader of the liberal democrats for one thing um, and there's loads of reasons for why this might change so i think it's still really important number but it's also just as important to explain the context and i think it's also quite a helpful and healthy part of a democracy because for all the polls are not always spot on it is a regular feed of information about what the public actually thinks and you know there are many criticisms that can and should be made about the state of our democracy but i think the public being listened to too much <laughs> isn't one of them you know much more it's, it's things around frustration that the people feel they're not being listened to or they don't have a way of influencing what politicians do and there's definitely a downside in being overly obsessed with this week's poll ratings compared to say if you're a minister getting the substance of what your department is doing right but it seems to me it's quite healthy that we have this regular reminder of what the public thinks yeah, and it's it's a it's a it's yeah it's 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 a good feedback loop. I mean, you know, you shouldn't get you shouldn't get too obsessed with the short term. You should focus a lot more on the long term. Yeah, to go back to the business analogy, that would be true as well. Mm. Many businesses would accept a cut in their short term profit because they're investing for the long term. Mm. And you kind of have to have that attitude of politics as well. But that still doesn't mean that it's it's not important to have this kind of this feedback loop where you go. Ah, God, we screwed up this week, and now there's four percent of people who said they'd vote for us last week who say they won't this week, or whatever it is. I think that's still a pretty important thing to have and understand. Yeah. In in terms of the methodology that YouGov uses with online polling, it's almost like a company well designed to be able to cope with a crisis like coronavirus in that sense. Because I presume that the polling is online as easy to do as ever at the moment and maybe i don't know maybe even more so if everyone's stuck at home are, are people wanting to while away a bit more of their time by doing polls you're getting higher response rates than usual yeah so i mean apparently talking to our our the, the people who have looked into this it, the, the response rates on online haven't changed that much so we're broadly getting the same response rates that we um did before obviously you can't do face-to-face -face research at the moment 
uh, people saying that telephone response rates have tipped up a little bit, which I think is what you'd expect because, yeah. you know, online polling, actually, you can basically do wherever. People do it on the tube, people do it on the loo on their phone, people do it during their lunch break. Telephone polling, most of the time, or in many cases, you have to be at home. And although yeah, there is mobile polling, but I think even then you're less likely to take a call from um, from a stranger asking you about your voting intention when you're out of the house. But yeah, I mean, more generally on your point, it's um, I think it's I think I think it's a really good thing that uh, YouGov, my company, has basically spent the last two decades using this new internet technology and trying to work out how you can build the best and most representative samples online mm. as is possible. Mm. I mean, I don't think we'd claim even in, a, in our wildest dreams that we're as good as the sort of gold standard random probability face-to-face -face sample. But our aim is, and always has been, to get as close to that as we possibly can using the technology um, that we have online. And therefore we can, in a crisis like this, turn around good high quality research quickly um, when some of those traditional methods really struggle and I think it is kind of a testament to the work that we've done that we are able to do that in this really really difficult time. Yeah. And you mentioned the um, the quality of your panel there and I guess that is one of the key uh, commercial edges that you have um, and so I've no doubt you will say that your panel is far better than any of the any of your rivals. I wonder though if you can give a little bit of insight into what what really makes for a good online panel because I'm thinking for example uh, Redfield and Wilton have recently started doing regular voting intention polls in the UK and they're a member of the British Polling Council uh, so they publish their data tables you can have a look at them when I've a couple of times asked them a question they've responded fairly quickly and professionally uh, so many of the the basic attributes look quite decent and trustworthy but of course they've not yet been put to the test in yeah. an election for example um so if 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 you were sort of looking at you know, a, a newer company like that what are the sorts of things you would be thinking about where in terms of you know is their panel likely to be a good panel or not if they had say some findings that were very different from you gov what what might make you think oh hang on a minute maybe <laughs> we've got the problem rather than it's just they're new and don't yet know what they're doing yeah so so the, the the big benefit I, I you know I, I I don't know a lot of what they're doing for one, um, but uh, but broadly speaking, you've got you've got two types of um, online panels or, or the, two types of uses. What we do at YouGov is we have our own proprietary panel which we use. Yeah, I'll talk about the benefits of that in a minute. A lot of other companies, probably most other companies that do voting intention, I'd guess by this stage, uh, buy in panels from external organisations. Um, you know, there's, there's loads of them kicking mm. around and you can you can just buy them in and use them to you know they send that fire out a load of emails invite them to your survey system you then do the survey now the big benefit of what we do rather than the other you know buying in panels is that we hold as i mentioned earlier all of the data all of that data mm. so hundreds of thousands probably getting close to a million data points now we don't hold all of the data points on all of our panelists mm. but there's a load of data points yeah. and we, we we hold them on, on on people and that allows us basically to just understand any problems that we would have with our sample that's the first benefit at least understand you know you can then look at it and go oh we've got too many people who pay a lot of attention to mm -hmm. politics that's possibly a problem and then be able to fix that 
Um, whereas if you're buying in these panels, obviously you don't have access to that data just sort of sitting around in your database and that makes it a lot more difficult. Um, the second benefit of having your own panel that I've found at least is uh, the ability to collect past vote data at the time of an election. Mm. Uh, so this sounds like a really nerdy point, but basically people forget quite quickly who they voted for. This is particularly true for the for remembering or forgetting that you voted for the Liberal Democrats, mm. or in the cases where people have, to a certain extent, voted tactically. They kind of forget that they voted tactically and just remember they voted, vote, they, they, they remember after a couple of years that they, they fought, I think after a couple of years, they voted for the party that they, um, they like the most preference, yeah. Um, so if you're, what we do in polling, of course, is we wait to pass votes. So we make sure we've got the correct number of people who voted for all of the different parties last time round. If you ask people how they vote two years after and then you wait it to that, you've obviously then got the wrong proportion of all of the different parties in. You might then have the right number of people who said they vote Lib Dem, but actually half of them didn't vote Lib Dem or vice versa. And that then creates problems because it means your sample isn't representative. So if you, there are ways of accounting for that, but because we've got our own panel, we don't need to mess around with it so much to try and fix that problem. And, and I think it's fair to say that probably that's the one key methodology area where British opinion polling, at least, is not that transparent. That even when you dig into the data tables that, you know, all the firms that members of the British Polling Council publish and so on, that has quite a lot of other methodology information very often, including around weighting and so on. That basic question about whose panel it is, is I don't think any, any whether, you know, and I don't think either YouGov either makes a particular play of it in its data tables. I don't think that appears in any of the data tables I've seen. So it sounds like that's the sort of the slightly hidden but key thing to yeah. think about, especially if there's a newer company. Yeah. And, and there is an argument we don't really understand. You know, I've, we don't really understand how much panel quality makes a difference, and how um, you know, and what impact that has. Either we don't because of the lack of transparency. That you know, I would, I think, make a fairly solid argument for why YouGov has what you broadly describe as a higher panel quality. You actually end up having, when we've looked into it, kind of a reverse panel effect. Um, people who have been on panels for longer tend to be more representative of the population than newer panelists. Because oh, that really? Sort of, yeah, surprisingly, because that sort of long-term relationship means they're more likely to be reliably answering questions. Oh, I see. Because um, way back, um, when I first started following opinion polls back in the early 1980s, panel polling was occasionally done during, say, elections, but it always came with that big health warning about worries about <laughs> panel effects. Yeah, uh, and that therefore the people who were who were staying as a member of a panel were disproportionately interested, energised, etc. And because you kept on asking them, they ended mm. up being more well informed, and so they would drift away from being representative. What you find now is the exact opposite: that the long-term panelists become more representative. So this is obviously just inside the universe of online polling, um, yeah. whereas it might not have been true with those other methods. Yeah. But yeah, that tends to be what we find. Mm. Um, yeah, if, 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 you, yeah the, if you wait the two samples to be representative by a load of things, uh, older panellists, this is what was found after the 2015 election, tend to, tend to be slightly 
uh, better respondents. And, and YouGov has always incentivized, uh, you know, the, the way we, we, we pay people to take part in our research, incentivizes them to have a longer term relationship with us. So I think that also probably makes our panel um, slightly better quality. There's also all of the quality control checks you do to make sure people are real people and things like that, that they're answering responsibly, they're not rushing through surveys, they're not just saying don't know through everything. All of those kind of background things probably do make some kind of difference we do our best to do it. I'm sure a lot of other companies do as well. But you're right, there is a lot less transparency over that kind of stuff than there is about your kind of standard weighting and sampling procedures. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so one, one more question in terms of what to make sense of from the polls and so on. Um, I think if you're a Lib Dem or indeed, I, I would have thought a Green supporter or UKIP or Brexit Party supporter as well, um, and perhaps also applied uh, support or maybe less so SNP, quite often when there's stuff in the polls, it focuses very much on other parties. Yeah. Mm. So particularly, there will be things like regular leader ratings for maybe Labour and Tory leaders. Perhaps in Scotland as well, you'll have the S SNP rating as rating two. But, but quite often, your own party will in some way be missing from some of the, the, the analysis. Um, so I just wonder if you've got any advice for, say, somebody who, let's say, is a Lib Dem looking at polling in general. Is there anything they should be particularly looking out for? You know, what do you think is most insightful at the moment in terms of understanding Lib Dem prospects? What, one thing I think is probably quite important is if you think how Jeremy Corbyn's unpopularity uh, at the last election made it really hard for the Lib Dems to win over a lot of Tory swing voters. You know, in, in, in sort of Tory Lib Dem marginals, Tories who were willing to vote Lib Dem were in the end scared off by the thought of Corbyn being Prime Minister. So I think at the moment, actually, one of the key stats for, from a Lib Dem perspective is how is Keir Starmer doing? Is he going to be as scary a figure as Jeremy Corbyn or not? I think almost certainly not, but obviously helpful to have data to back that up. Is there anything else you would particularly suggest is, is worth looking at if you're interested in the fate of the Lib Dems? Yeah, so I mean, understanding everybody's weaknesses um, is very important. Um, just addressing your first point for a minute, one of the reasons we quite often don't uh, uh, don't add the, some of the smaller parties into many of our questions is because it doesn't seem fair on them. So if you ask who, if you ask the best prime minister question, yeah. it's not really fair to have two people who everyone's heard of alongside the same question. Uh, you know, in the same answer list as someone who many people haven't heard of yet. So on, on questions like that, we, we often leave, it, leave out certain leaders because it doesn't feel fair on them, not because we're sort of doing them over. Other questions, we, we therefore try to involve them on. But it's true, therefore, that there's a lot less data on smaller parties um, than there is on the larger ones. I think the main thing is, of course, just looking for... For, for the weaknesses of the main parties, you know, and, and trying to understand that. Obviously, that doesn't always lead you to the right conclusions. In the case of the Liberal Democrats running up to the last election, my God, there were loads of weaknesses of the main two parties. But in the end, as you say, those weaknesses ended up pushing people to the other main party rather than towards the Liberal Democrats. But, but yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's one of, the, that's one of the, 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 the crucial things. The other thing I think that's really important to anyone uh, working in politics is every week we run a most important issues tracker. So what mm. do you think the biggest thing issues facing the country? And it's really quite interesting to see how everything moves up and down on that. So at the moment, obviously, health is really important. I mean, health's always been really important, but it's now way to the top whilst Brexit's dropped off. Uh, the economy's shot back up. I'd be shocked if going into the next election, it didn't look a little bit like 2010, 2015, when the economy was seen as being the most important 
issue facing the country? How do you use that to influence your policies? But also, despite the fact that almost every other issue's dropped off in this crisis, as you know, everything becomes about coronavirus. Mm. The environment is still held up. It went up massively last year and the year before. I think we went into the 2019 election with three times as many people picking out as a top issue as did going into 2017. And it still managed to just about hold up despite everything else disappearing as an issue. So I think the environment is going to continue to be an important issue in politics going forwards. And that's quite important for the Lib Dems in terms of us working out what our pitch is at future elections because the environment has often been one of those issues that matters a lot to us, but it's a struggle to make it matter more to voters. And that's a really important point about how, despite current circumstances where previous economic downturns have resulted in the environment you know, dropping hugely in the level of importance in the public's eyes, the fact that the environment is holding up so much, even in current circumstances, is a, perhaps a pointer that when we do get to our party leadership election over the summer, but that's an issue that we should be particularly debating and discussing. Just one final question then. What's the thing that you think people most get wrong when looking at political opinion polls? Let's leave people with a good tip to not end up being foolish. Oh, God, that's a really good question. Generally, as pollsters, we're filled with doubt. Yeah. Um, there's, I'm going to go back and mention a West Wing episode again, if you don't mind. But there's a point where... They do a poll to look at um, whether they can put more regulations on guns. Mm. Uh, They do a poll of three areas, which are three constituencies, which are seen as being particularly important. And it comes back and goes, well, a lot of people there oppose them. And they go, right, we're going to have to give this up then. And then the the, the pollster turns around and goes, well, are you going to have to do that? Or can you win people over? And I think Mm. like as a pollster, you constantly have debates like that going around in your head when you're thinking about political strategy. And the truth is that there is a massive limitation to what polls can tell you on questions like that. Can the public be convinced of of an issue? You know, is this something that's going to mean that the, the public will never vote for you again if you go on this? Or is it going to be something which the public say they are opposed in a polling question but really don't don't care that much about you know hypothetical polling questions in terms of would you vote for a party if they did this or would you not vote for a party if they did that all of that stuff actually is very very difficult to do and can often lead you to misleading conclusions which when you know when we then have real world events that happen that's not how it plays out in practice so i think a lot of that stuff i would always take with a pinch of salt because basically it's it's just it's just very very difficult to work out how events will ever unfold Um, and a really striking example of that was in many ways sort of theresa may's political death knell in that the disastrous dementia tax mm. policy from the 2017 election was polled and it came out quite well yeah. in the in the polling but of it, course it would do if you don't was, a dementia tax yeah it, uh, exactly it was not it was not described as a dementia tax in the poll it was described in a i think probably fairly reasonable uh, factual way not the way that i would have described it but not a way that you can accuse of being massively biased uh, but of course policies get attacked by by other people and there are other ways of describing that policy which are also perfectly fair um and if you take a different description of that policy it comes out an awful lot worse as Theresa May discovered 
and you can't you can't work out what effects you know the Sunday Times splashing on the word dementia tax is going to have. You mm. can't work out the extent to which that argument is going to cut through, and journalists are going to make the decision to run on it, and the BBC News six o'clock package is going to you know what what framing that's mm. going to put on it. It's it's just very hard to capture all of those nuances yes. of how something may or may not unfold in the real world in a poll. There's one example from very recently, which is. The government obviously made some changes to lockdown rules on Sunday night very recently. Pretty much all of those policies individually were popular. You lob them into a package and now the public say that they oppose the changes. They think it's all happening too quickly. Um, and it's just things like that that happen all the time. So I think you have to be, be filled with doubt uh, when analysing polls. Um, that doesn't mean they can't tell you anything, but you constantly have to question the claims that are made off the back of them. Excellent. I think that reminder that we should be filled with doubt seems a suitably theological note <laughs> on which to end. So thank you very much, Chris. You can find Chris on Twitter at ChrisCurtis94. I did sample some of the Chris Curtis's numbers 1 to 93 earlier. Chris Curtis94 is definitely the best of the bunch. You can find myself at Mark Pack, this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. And if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast. Go on send an email to a friend now. Thank you very much. Until next time.